I uh, just want to remind you that I promised you last week that if you come to Rock Valley Bible Church on Christmas morning, um, you have a, have a book to give you. Um, in fact, someone uh, who's not come to our church was uh, listening online, and she told me just yesterday, she said, oh, I, I, I really want to come to church on uh, Christmas Day, but I can't. And so... Um, Anyway, I got good news for you is that my books came yesterday. So today, if you are here, you are free. Here, why don't you bring those up here, Steffi? Got a a bunch of them. So like uh, I've got uh, one per household. So like this says, uh, Dirk and Nancy Reed, you can can have this one. You're just right on the top there. But um, I have just one for household. We'll, we'll put these out here after the service. I did want to give them to you after the service so you don't read them during my sermon. So, Ruthie, you just make sure your parents aren't reading the, the book or, or whatever until afterwards. You can sit on it or something. That would be good. Um, but it is, it is my gift uh, to you. Um, but if you're visiting, I have plenty of copies for you as well. You can, you can take one home. Um, that's good. And the, my book is entitled My, My Bible Summaries. And the, 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 pre, the premise of the book comes from 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And, and that verse promises us that every verse of Scripture is in the Bible for a reason. It is a divine instrument by which God can teach us and correct us and reprove us and train us in righteousness. And God can do that through a single verse in the Bible, but God can also do that with all of Scripture, the entirety of the Scriptures to train us in righteousness. Martin Luther put it well, he said this, he says, I study my Bible as I study, as I gather apples. He says, first I shake the whole tree that the ripest might fall. And then I shake each limb. And when I've shaken each limb, I shake each branch and every twig. And then I look under every leaf. I search the Bible as a whole, like shaking the whole tree. And then I shake every limb, like studying book after book. And then I shake every branch, giving attention to the chapters when they do not break the sense. And then I shake every twig or a careful study of the paragraphs and sentences and words and their meanings. And my book basically is a call for you to shake the apple tree, to to shake the whole tree. Because there's a way in which reading through the entire Scripture puts us all under under God's Word, allows God to teach us and to train us in ways maybe we weren't planning. I know sometimes people can just go to their favorite passages. Well, there are other passages in the Bible that are there waiting to train you and equip you, used of God, that you just neglect. And reading through the whole Scripture helps you to to see that, helps you to encounter those verses, which can help train you to walk in a righteous way. Also, reading through the whole Scriptures helps you to to see the big picture of of God's plan of redemption. You see patterns and you see themes of how God deals with us. Not just mere propositions say, this is what God is like, but you see what God is like over and over and over again. And we're equipped for righteousness in a way that focusing on a single passage just doesn't do. And and, and really, one of the, the grand themes that you see when you're reading through the Old Scriptures, how dependent we are upon the Lord. We're just entirely dependent upon Him, how we need to cry out to Him constantly, and how God is, is, is longing that every believer right, would, would just continue to, to cry out unto God 
Come help us. Be with us. First Thessalonians says we should pray always. And we should always be praying a prayer of help. And in that vein, I've been preaching a sermon series this Christmas season called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's our cry during Christmas time. It was the cry of the first century before Jesus came. They were longing that God would come to restore them. As the first stanza says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And the Christmas hymn really expresses the longing of the Jews before the birth of Christ. A time when they were in bondage and in captivity and they were mourning and they're longing that Messiah would come and deliver them. But really what's interesting is if you read through the whole Scriptures, you find out that this has been the cry throughout all of biblical history. It's always been the sense of God's people that this world is broken and God, we need You to come and be among us and help us and, and rescue us. And that's been my burden these, these sermons during Christmas season is, is to show you from all of Scripture, right? Just uh, my Bible summaries, mastering the Bible one chapter at a time from all of Scripture that this has always been the cry of God's people. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Not just the cry at Christmas, but the cry at all time. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And so two weeks ago, we began looking at the writings of Moses. And we saw that right after Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the serpent. And his curse was a form of a, of a promise to us. He says, I will put enmity, enmity, serpent, Satan, between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this promise here overshadows all of the Scripture. Because the whole Bible is about... The, the, the conflicts that we have between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Now certainly it's not a one-to-one com, combat, but it is. God is, is in the heavens and yet there's, there's serpent's kingdom. There's Satan's kingdom um, battling against us. And the promise here is that God will have ultimate victory over Satan and his schemes. And as the opening chapter, Genesis explains, right, as, as, as one to rise up was needed as the world plunged itself into wickedness. And the world was constantly looking for this one. Who's the one who's going to come? Who's going to, who's going to crush the head of the serpent? In fact, there was a man named Lamech whose son was Noah. You know about Noah. Maybe you don't realize about Lamech. But he said when Noah was born, he says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. It's an obvious allusion to the promise of God that He made in the garden that one would arise to defeat Satan and overturn the curse. And essentially, Lamech was saying to Noah, with Noah, like, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Of course, Noah wasn't Emmanuel. Noah didn't redeem. But he did build an ark. He and his family escaped the destruction of the world. Yet the promise of God still stood. He wasn't going to leave the world in sin. He was going to crush the serpent's head. And he would do this through a nation beginning with Abraham. And God's promise comes in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Here's the promise. The Lord said to Abram, who would later be called Abraham, Go from your country and from your kindred, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promised that the Messiah, this Deliverer, would come actually from the line of Abraham. It is from his seed that all the families of the earth would be blessed. But Abraham wasn't the one to come. 
It was his seed. But it wasn't Isaac, his son. It wasn't Jacob, his grandsons. Or it wasn't any of his great-grandsons, the twelve sons of Jacob. The closest we get is Moses. The one who redeemed the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And if you remember when the Jews were in distress, they said, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Well, not quite like that, but they, we read about it in Exodus chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. For there is crying, God, help us. O come, O come. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And He came and He rose. He he raised up Moses then to be their Redeemer. to, To redeem them out of slavery. But Moses wasn't the promised one. Sure, he was, a, as I've called it, a redeemer, but he was only a shadow of the true redeemer. And Moses gave the law, which really set a vision for a perfect lawkeeper to come. That wasn't him. Moses called himself a prophet. was only a shadow of the ultimate prophet to come. Even Moses knew he was a prophet, but, but knew there was another one coming, and he directed our attention to him. The Lord said to me, Deuteronomy 18.18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command them. So that's talking about Jesus. The ultimate prophet that would come. And we looked at that last week, right? The law of Moses. The Torah. And last week we looked at the history of, of Israel. And we saw that there was another one after Moses. His name was Joshua. And he was a conqueror. whom God raised up to lead the people of Israel into the land that God had promised to Abraham. But he was not the ultimate promised one who would crush Satan. In fact, he even failed to drive out all of the nations um, that he was called to do. Then there came a time of judges. And these were the ones that God raised up to rescue the people of Israel. When they cried out to the Lord for help, when they were in distress, and they said, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, help us. And God would look and see their distress. And He would bring a Redeemer, a judge, if you will. If you remember from uh, Nehemiah, these are called saviors. As they saved them from the hand of the enemies. But when the judge died, Israel was worse than before. These, these saviors helped a little but they, they weren't the, the saviors who are going to crush Satan's head. Only a little part they did. They're simply shadows of the ultimate savior who would come. And finally, last week, we looked at the history of the kings. They came after the judges. But of the 40 or so kings that ruled Israel and Judah, none of them rose up to crush the head of the serpent. David was the closest of the kings. He was a man after God's own heart, but he sinned greatly. And he wasn't the one. And God said he wasn't the one. But God promised that from His line one would come to rise up, to rule, to reign over the kingdom forever. And that came in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. And He shall build a house for My name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. That's the longing of the Jews during the days of Jesus. Longing for a king to come. Longing for one from the line of David, from the house of David, to arise to be this king who's going to ultimately deliver them. Which really brings us to this week. Two weeks ago we looked at Moses. Last week we looked at the history of Israel. And this week we're going to turn our attention to the prophets. It is interesting when the Jews have ordered the, the whole of the Old Testament. There really are three parts of the Old Testament. There's the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. 
The Torah is the law of Moses. The Nevi'im is the prophets. And then the Ketuvim are the writings. And so I, I've divided it into these three ways. It's not exactly how the Jews uh, broke, break, broke, break it up even today with the law and the, the prophets and the writings. Um, but we're breaking it up into three different sections. And what I'm trying to do is, is just show you the overview of just how even it's, it's crying out, the testimony of the Scriptures crying out that we need someone to come. We need this Emmanuel to come and rescue us. Now, when we think about the prophets, all right, they come in all shapes and sizes. Um, now, I'm not talking about their physical appearance, but some of them may have been tall, some of them may have been round, some of them may have been short. We don't exactly know, but, but the actual books, their messages are different. Isaiah the prophet spans 66 chapters. Whereas Obadiah, his message is but one chapter. And not only shapes and sizes, but they're, they're written to different people. Some are written to the northern kingdom of Israel, like Amos and Hosea. Many of the prophets written to the southern kingdom of Judah. Some even writ, wrote their message to foreign nations, like Nahum and Obadiah. Two of the prophets wrote during the days of exile. And, and three more wrote their prophets after Judah came back from exile. So these prophets... In, in all these different times, they are addressing different situations. And if you're curious also about uh, where these prophets are, I included in, in the back of the book just a little title to really help you read through the Scriptures, just a little title of, of all the books of the Bible and how they, they fit historically and who they're written to. And I found this helpful, uh, this chart, in reading the, through the Bible for myself. But as varied as these messages are, different times, different contexts, different people, there are some common themes in the prophets. And uh, there are many who lived, and here's the the message, right? There there are many who have lived in rebellion against the Lord. And whoever, whatever prophet it was who wrote, was always writing to rebellious people. Now, certainly within the rebellious people, there were some who were godly and righteous, but they were few. Typically, the prophets came to denounce people and to tell them to turn and to repent, and they need to repent and turn to the Lord. And God's going to come and judge if you don't repent. You might summarize the message, this phrase that Ivan and I have, uh, have developed. Repent and find forgiveness or be judged for your rebellion. Repent and find forgiveness or be judged for your rebellion. That pretty much sums up the message of the prophets. But, but there's also another theme in the prophets. That God will make it right someday. He will restore all things. He will come and rescue the people of God. See, God made a promise to crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And see, as you trace the backbone of the Scripture, you find the, the, the next big promise. There's a covenant sometimes called. Genesis 12, promising from the seed of Abraham, one's going to come up to, to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. And then God promised you to go through the house of David, 2 Samuel 7. So like even these verses, I've repeated over and over again. You should know these verses. Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12.1-3, and 2 Samuel 7. Just, just know those. because These are the big covenants. These are, these are the backbone, if you will, to the whole rest of, of the Scriptures. And, and God, in making these promises, keeps His promises. In fact, a good way to summarize the entirety of the Bible is promises made and promises kept. The Old Testament contains promises that God makes, and the New Testament contains the records of how God kept those promises. In fact, Mark Dever has written a book 
two books, I think. Promises Made is one book. It's basically a survey of all the Old Testament, one sermon for each, each book, one chapter for each book of the Bible. And then Promises Kept, which is a New Testament survey, one sermon for one chapter, whatever, for each of the New Testament. Promises Made, Promises Kept. And, and, and these are the promises, the big ones. Right? First of all, a curse to Satan, promise to everybody. And then the promise to Abraham, the Messiah is going to come from your line. And then from David, the line, it's from his house that God is going to establish this covenant. And it all hinges on Christmas. The budding of the promise of God keeping His promises by sending His Son into the world. But before Jesus came, the Jews were longing, and we ought to be longing as well for His redemption. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And the prophets tell of His coming. Okay, so this morning, I've got the task of preaching through all the prophets. Like... All right. I mean, normally I like to take a passage of scripture, right? We go through that passage, but today we're like all the prophets. And, um, I've just sort of, maybe not necessarily random, but sort of just, just pick some. And so I, I chose to do a few small and then we'll go big. So let's consider first the book of Joel. So what, what, what you could do is you can open up to Joel. Um, that's kind of one of the minor prophets. So it's towards the end. Um, of the Old Testament. If you can't find it, just look in the beginning of your Bible. You can find a, a, a table of contents. It's going to take you there. But we're looking at, at Joel. And um, this book of Joel has three chapters. And, and again, my, my, my book is entitled My Chapter Summaries, which really is a nine-page essay, which you can read in half an hour. And then after that, it has a bunch of charts for you to fill in of chapters, summaries, of just one-line summaries, if you can, or, or short-line summaries, just of what the Scripture says. Um, and, and I found that, that if you do that for yourself, it helps you to engage in what that is. And then also one of the things it does is it allows you to, to quickly look at a book of the Bible and catch its sense. Maybe not every detail, but you catch its sense, you catch its sense pretty well. And so what I want to do, as I'm trying to do, is just share some of my chapter summaries with you. They aren't particularly great. Um, sometimes I edit them. I mean, every, every year as I've read through scriptures since I've done this, I, I'm editing them and making them better, making them tighter, helping me in my own interaction to help remember them. Um, but they're a shot at, at summarizing the, the, the book of Joel with his terminology. Here's, here's my chapter one. Now, again, if you can't read that, move to the front. All right, there are, there are some chairs up here. You can get there. You can even sit here, right? So if you can't see that, that's, that's good. Um, so here's my chapter one. Locust, and, and the four is like, that, that's a verse to help me remember. So I can go right to, you can look at Joel chapter one, verse four, and you say, what the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts have eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts have eaten. What the hopping locusts left, the destroying locusts has eaten. So I said just right there in verse four, we get locusts and a nation, verse six, have laid waste my land. So lament and cry out to the Lord. And there's the summary of the entire first chapter of Joel. And I've missed a lot of details. But that's the nature of summarizing chapters, right? You have to skip stuff. But Joel basically begins by saying that there's been destruction that's come upon the land. A locust plague has come. This, this nation has come against them and left the land desolate. And Joel calls the people to lament and cry to the Lord. What, what is lament? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, Right? Come, we're like, we're like done. We don't have anywhere else to turn but God, you. Come. And then in chapter 2, we read of how this is only a foreshadow of what's to come. Joel 2, the day of the Lord is coming. Nothing escapes. 
So return to me with all your heart. I will remove the northerner far from you. Fear not. Be glad. I will restore the years of a locust has eaten, and you shall eat in plenty. I will pour out my spirit. Now that's, that's a lot, but Joel chapter 2 is kind of like the big, the big chapter, and so that maybe goes a little bit extra. Um, that's how it is. See, when the Lord comes, nothing's going to escape His devastation. Uh, Joel says, Repent. He says, but, but you don't need to fear. You can be glad in the Lord because He's going to come. There's a promise there. He's going to restore the land. Restore what the locust has eaten. He's also going to give you the Spirit, which was fulfilled then in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon the church and brought revival in the land. The people cried out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And He did. And the Spirit came and revived the church. In chapter 3, then we read of the judgment upon the nations. Here's my summary. I will judge all the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Judah will be inhabited forever. There's the promise of judgment, but there's also a promise of the restoration of the people of God. This is why you can cry, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's because there are promises of restoration. So here's the book of, of Joel in a nutshell. I mean, you can read the whole thing there in 30 seconds. Joel 1, the land is desolate, so cry out to the Lord. Chapter 2, worse is on the way, so repent. I will come and restore you. Joel chapter 3, I'll make it right in the end. I think Joel is a, is a call to say, listen, things are messed up. You're messed up. You're sinful. You, you, you're facing some, some difficulties. The locusts. You, you're hungry. A famine is coming to land. A nation is coming up you. You're at war. You're in Ukraine. You, your financial institutions are collapsing. So cry out to the Lord. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. There's Joel. Uh, let's try Micah. Um, <clears throat> here's my survey of, of Micah chapter 1. So you can turn to Micah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. I just want to have it here so I'm ready to, to respond. It says, The Lord is coming out to tread upon the high places. For this I will lament and wail. This chapter is about a declaration of God's judgment about what's coming upon Judah, and it's bad. And Micah mourns over the destruction that's coming. You see that there in verse 8. For this, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. And in chapter 2, Micah begins to lay out their sins. Woe to those who devise wickedness. And lately my people have risen up as an enemy. The, The people of Judah were devising wickedness. That is, they were oppressing one another. They were seizing property. They were taking away houses. And the people of Judah were turning against each other. Here this nation of of common people were becoming enemies. And then in chapter 3, he turns to the leaders. Micah 3, because of the rulers of the house of Israel detest justice, Zion shall be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become a heap of ruin these are the leaders. Uh, this was not only the people themselves, but the leaders also were oppressing people. And God promised that Zion's going to be plowed up and Jerusalem will be a heap of ruin. And indeed, this came to pass when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem, all because of the sin of Judah. And then in chapter 4, we continue with Micah's prophecy, right, of, of the future. And this is where things begin to turn a little bit. It says, later, many nations will go to the mountain of the Lord but now you shall go to Babylon. In other words, right? He says, there's going to be a day when Israel becomes this light and this beacon. Nations are going to come and they're going to worship the Lord there. But that's not now. You're going to Babylon in exile. 
That's his message. And so you can just even see, like, there's, there's hope. There, there's hope of, of God coming and doing revival, though that's not now and that's not in this season for you all. And then chapter 5 brings the, the true hope. Micah 5, a ruler will come forth from Bethlehem. He shall be great and he shall be their peace. And this is the chapter that promises the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. This is the, the, the Christmas promise. Micah 5, 2, but you... O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth that's from of old, from ancient of days. That is the ruler, you're going to have this ruler, he's going to rise up from Bethlehem, the, the small village just south of Jerusalem. It's very small, hardly enough even to be counted. Yet from you is going to be this king who's going to lead the people of Israel. And this is none other than God Himself, Emmanuel. God comes and is with us. And the natural response of Judah would be to long for this time to come, right? There's going to be the day, as chapter 4 says, right? When the nations are going to go to the mountain of the Lord, there's going to be some revival happening in Israel. But now we're going to Babylon. Oh Lord, come, come. Let, let's have verse 2 of chapter 4, not verse 10 of chapter 4. But chapter 10, of course, would have to come because they were going to be exiled to Babylon. And for the sake of time, we're not going to finish the summaries of the last two chapters. There's simply a call to repentance. A call to cry out to the Lord, as Micah says in Micah 7, 7. As for me, I will look to the Lord. And that's what I'm encouraging this Christmas season, right? Look to the Lord. Plead to Him that He would come. It's a great application of Christmas season, right? Look to the Lord. And really, if there's anything that I long for you all in, in these overview sermons where I'm just really just, just dipping down into some of the details of the Scripture but trying to bring you up to see this big picture, is this, that you would look to the Lord this Christmas season. Look to the Lord as much as Simeon in the temple looked to the Lord, or as Anna looked to the Lord, or as the righteous people in Israel under the Roman oppression were looking to the Lord and crying for Emmanuel to come. All right, let's take a big one. Let's try Isaiah. My goodness. Um, now, there, there's no way even that we can begin to conquer Isaiah. I have my, my Bible summaries in my, in my little booklet here, and Isaiah I have crammed into one page. It's kind of two columns. I did not do many of these chapters justice. That's that's for sure. But, but I timed it. And to read through, just to survey what Isaiah says would take about four minutes or so. And so we, we can hardly even do that, much less even come to grasp what Isaiah is about. Um, but it includes all the same elements. What I talked about, even what we saw in uh, Joel and what we saw in, in Micah, that uh, Judah in Isaiah's day, was in rebellion against the Lord. And, and Isaiah is basically calling them to repentance or they will be judged for their rebellion. So, so why don't you open your Bibles? You can open them to Isaiah. I just want to read several verses in Isaiah chapter 1 because it sets up these themes just so clearly that, that also are, are in the rest of, of Isaiah as well. So you see, right chapter 1, Right after introducing Isaiah, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Here was a prophet who reigned a long time, and he had a long time to write his, his message. Look at verse 2. 
Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know and my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. And you just see Isaiah straight from the gate speaking of the, the evil of the land. He says, I brought them up. They've been my child. But they have gone astray. It says, even an ox knows its owner. And a donkey knows where its crib is. But Israel doesn't know me. They don't understand they're a sinful nation. And so God is, is against them. He calls them, verse 10, calls them people of Sodom and Gomorrah, the most wretched and despised cities of, um, of the ancient world. Los Angeles, Las Vegas, San Francisco, if you will. And the call to repentance then comes in verse 16. Wash yourselves and make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. He's basically saying, right, cleanse yourself. Repent. Right, take a bath. Get, get clean from all your evilness. And then he says, okay, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. He says, I, I want to show you about what, what cleanness looks like. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, you'll be white as snow. And, and though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So from the, the stain of a, a bloody hand, he'll wipe it clean. Hamlet's hand that had, had had murdered me covered with blood and he dipped it in the ocean and it wouldn't wash away. And then he looked at God says, I can clean that hand. And make it white and pure as snow. He says, verse 19, If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the message of most of the prophets. It's right there, right? You, you sinned, and you've gone astray, and I've loved you. You are my offspring. You are my children, and you've gone astray. So come, come to me, and I'll cleanse you, and I'll wash you. And I'll make you clean. That's the message of the prophet to your sinful nation. So repent. And I'll forgive you, God says. But if if you refuse, you'll be eaten by the sword. But interspersed throughout Isaiah and the prophets, we see also not only just this message of condemnation, but also this message of a promise of restoration. And, and so that's why, you know, Isaiah, it's not merely that, okay, I turn from my sins and, and I'm, I'm cleansed, I'm right, but there's this bigger longing for God to come among us and change and transform our nation, transform our people, and be among us and help us where we are impotent to do anything. And so here, let's, let's try a few summaries. Okay, I've got a summary from uh, Isaiah chapter 7. You can turn over there if you want, but here's... Here it is, Isaiah 7. King Ahaz fears the attacks of Rezin of Syria and Pekah of Israel. And God gives the sign of a virgin birth. And here it is, Isaiah 7. In fact, this is Emmanuel. Um, 
But it's couched in the context of, of God giving proof to Ahaz, who was, who was fearful of these foreign armies that are attacking. You remember this time, Israel and Judah are split nations. Israel's in the north, right? It's a secular nation against, against uh, uh, the south. They got a civil war, and they're, they're two nations. And, and here, Ahaz is, is fearing Pekah of Israel, who's one of the, the last kings of Israel, and he's hearing, he's fearing of resident of Syria, which is even north of that, like they're, they're teaming up to come at Ahaz. And, and, and God says, it's okay. I've got you on this. And he says this, here's the sign. The sign I'm going to give you. That, that if I can give you this sign, I also can deliver you from the attacks on the foreign armies. He says, therefore, Isaiah 7, 14, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. And this is it. Emmanuel means God with us. Im, in Hebrew, means with. Anu is us. It's a, a common ending. It's us. And then El is God. With us, God. God with us. And, and the promise is this, that God was with them, the Jews. If God if the promise that God could come and be with them was enough for Ahaz, then this promise was taken up by the Jews who longed for Him to come and said, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And in a few chapters later, God gives further revelation about who this child might be. Here's my summary, Isaiah chapter 9. So I'm skipping 8 just for the sake of time. We're going to 9. In Galilee, they will see a great light. To us, a child is born, and Israel will be devoured. Jesus came and ministered in Galilee, just as Isaiah foretold. In fact, if you look over there, chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. The light would come as, as given by the Lord. And even Isaiah 9, 6, here's the child, Here, here's the description, right? For unto us a, a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here is an illusion. This child is, is more than a mere man. He is Mighty God, who this child is. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's the Everlasting Father. An allusion there to the Trinity. That the, the Son is, is given is no less than God the Father Himself. And the Son is also called the Prince of Peace. Israel tried for centuries to have peace, but it was only through the Messiah that true peace, everlasting peace, could ever come to be. And this, by the way, was the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. Yeah, it's certainly Abrahamic covenant. It's, it's coming through Abraham. This child is going to be born of a Jew, but also a Davidic promise as well. Look at Isaiah 7, 9, the very next verse. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And here we see all the other prophecies like, like crashing together. The promise of this seed arising to give everlasting peace in contrast to the chaos that Satan causes. The promise of the child of Abraham to bring great blessing upon the earth. And the promise this child would come from the line of David. From the throne of David. It's all because God would come in and be among us. And so the, think about the, the Jews had this promise. And they sang, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Let, let this child be born to us that will bring in everlasting peace. Further prophecies are given in, in Isaiah 11. Here's my, my summary of Isaiah 11. 
a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The wolf and the lamb, and God will recover the remnant. You can see just there's a lot of shorthand here. <clears throat> there's even some case I don't even have, like the wolf and the lamb. I don't have the fact that they are, are lying together. I don't have room enough for, for verses about where that is, but you can look even in chapter 11 and verse 6. The, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and that little child shall lead them. But there's, there's a lot of shorthand here if you're ever going to get in <clears throat> summaries in the, in the little spots that I have for you. But it's very effective. It's very helpful to at least think through. And you, you look at 11, you say, oh, the shoot's going to come from the stump of Jesse and the, the wolf and the lamb. I remember that passage. It speaks about them dwelling together in, in safely. And God's going to recover the remnants. So there's going to be some sort of revival is what chapter 11 is talking about. But here again, we see the reaffirmation of the Davidic promise. The one who's come is... Is the son of Jesse. That's, that's David's father. And, and if you read in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a, a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Isaiah 11, verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes with what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. Delighting himself in the, the fear of the Lord, that the Spirit being upon him and being able to speak and, and heal and being able also to strike as well. As Israel heard these things, certainly it caused their heart to, to long for the Messiah to come. And especially the, the things in their world continue to decay. And over and over, you see Isaiah, right? There's, there's judgment. If you just look in chapters right, 13 and following, I've got 13, right? The oracle about Babylon. They're like Sodom. Or like chapter 15, the oracle about Moab. Moab is undone. Chapter 16, let Moab wail for Moab. And then chapter 17, against Damascus. And chapter 18, against Cush. And chapter 19, against Egypt. Over and over and over again, you get these condemnations until the, the hinge happens in Isaiah. It happens in Isaiah chapter 40. You, you can turn over there, speaking again about, about God coming and, and being with them. Isaiah 40 begins, like in all this judgment and all this condemnation and all this difficulty. 40 verse 1, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. And, and even, even it comes in, in verse 9 of chapter 40. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense is before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd who gather the lambs in His arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So here's this, this powerful God who's coming. But the idea is that God is coming. He says, behold your God. And he's going to come as a shepherd. He'll gather into his arms his, his lambs. And who is this coming? This is, this is the God of gods. The great gods. To whom will you liken God? Verse 12 and following. You just see the, the dominance of God. 
And then, then you also sense in Isaiah 53 about the, uh, the suffering servant who's going to come. And so you get this, this, this dual character about this God who's going to come, this Emmanuel who's going to come. He's going to be powerful and strong, and yet he's also going to be meek and mild and rejected. And the Jews were confused about that. They wanted the strong God to come and judge the nations. But we get at Christmas time the gentle Jesus who heals the nations, who will come again as a strong judge and mighty power. But he's coming in different times, in different ways. We get the gentleness. We get the crucified Messiah his first time. So as Israel heard these things, certainly it caused their heart to, to long for the Messiah, to, to long for this child who's going to lead them, to long for God. Behold your God. Oh God, He's going to come. And they were singing, Oh come, oh come, Emmanuel. And the longer the delay, the more the angst, the more the desire that, that Emmanuel would come. And I, I simply ask you this, right? Do you long for this? Is this your heart? Are you singing this Christmas season, O come, O come, Emmanuel? You know, we're going to see that Christmas morning, we're going to, of course, celebrate the coming of the Messiah. Galatians 4, we're going to look at that. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, that He might redeem those who are under the law. We'll be looking at that. The, the, the time has come now. Messiah has come. And then next week on... Uh, on January 1st, we're going to be looking at the second coming. And I'm going to urge you, right? Are you, are you longing for the second coming of Christ to restore things like the Jews in the first century longing for the first coming of Christ? Well, this has been the cry of the whole Old Testament. There's been Moses to the history of, of Israel to the prophets. And that should be our cry. And really, to the extent that you see the brokenness of yourself and you see the brokenness of the world, you will echo the same cry. I mean, do you see the brokenness of the world? Do you see the war in Ukraine? Do you see any of those images of one nation rising up against another nation? Ruthless? War crimes, for sure. Do you see the social problems here in America that we just can't solve? Homelessness? Poverty, abuse, addiction. Our country is filled with fraud. Headline news is fraud. Our country is filled with conflict, politics, races, conflict. Our country is filled with immorality, legislating, signing into law that which is immoral. Now you can be outraged at that, and you can yell at other people about that, or you can... Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, just solve it for us. We can't solve it on our own. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Now, I'd be remiss this morning if I didn't share with you one last verse of Scripture. Just because I've shared with you the big signposts. I've called it the backbone. Genesis 3.15, Satan will be defeated. Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham. It, the blessings are going to come through the line of Abraham. The promise to David that a king would sit on his throne forever. There's the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And what else do I need to share with you this morning if I'm going to recap all the Old Testament? The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Good job, Steffi! And where's the new covenant? Uh, help me. Where's the new covenant? 
not Matthew. We're talking old Jeremiah 31. Turn with me there. And if we had more time, we could go through my my summaries for Jeremiah. Right? I mean, they they take up a, a whole page as well, 52 chapters. Here's the new covenant. And the reason I share this is because this is like, like the key chapters you need to know, right? You need to know Genesis 12. You need to know 2 Samuel 7. You need to know Jeremiah 31. Like these should be like, like the key, like these are like the pillars that hold up the tent. And without the pillars, the tent's going to fall down. But these are the things that, that strike it up. And by the way, the new covenant is, uh, apart from the new covenant, none of this would be possible. There's no way we'd turn. There's no way that any problem would be solved. But the new covenant, Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. It's easy to remember. Thirty-one, thirty-one. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That is the Mosaic covenant, right? You keep my laws and you will live. And they didn't keep their laws. They didn't live. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, because of the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. And that new covenant, by the way, is not merely made with the house of Israel. Yes, it is here to the house of Israel, but is extended then to all who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. By faith, we become children of Abraham. And it is the new covenant. And what's the new covenant? The new covenant isn't just obey and, and, and be changed. It says that God Himself is going to come into our hearts with His Spirit. He's going to put the law in our hearts. He's going to create within us this desire to walk in His ways and to serve Him. And that's what he does to everyone who believes in Jesus. The Spirit comes, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God puts that law within our hearts. He puts a desire in our hearts to walk in his way, to follow him and to serve him. And so like, if you're lacking that, right, or sometimes if you're in sin or you're, you're pursuing things that aren't right, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Right? Change me and transform me. Not, not just as a nation, but even me individually. Change my heart. Put it there. Be my God. And forgive my sins. That's how it ends, right? I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I love it. Well, just turn over to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 applies this passage to our souls. Save all the chapters of Hebrews. This is the one that I have loved most, Hebrews chapter 10, because it speaks to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Chapter 10 begins with this, this, uh, this repeated sacrifices. The, the worshiper can never be made clean. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to, to make the worshiper clean. Otherwise, it would have stopped coming. But the fact that they're repeated sacrifices every day, every week, every month, every year, says you're not clean, you're not clean, you're not clean. But Jesus, chapter 10, verse 10, by that will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus died once for all to cleanse us. And then, verses 10 through 14, 11 through 14, he's talking about the priests. 
And then he says, no, Jesus is so different. He says, by one single offering as he perfected for all time, those who have been sanctified. And he's going again towards the same thing. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I write them on their minds. Then he adds this, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's the new covenant. He changes us and doesn't remember our sins anymore. And then here's the conclusion, the one sacrifice of Christ. Chapter 10, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. No longer needs to be another offering of sin because He's forgiven us once completely for all times in the new covenant. Just remember, as you think through the broad scope of the Old Testament, the promise to crush the serpent, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, and then the new covenant that comes to us in Jeremiah 31. Those are the, the, the pillars, the backbone of the Old Testament. It's all screaming at us. God needs to come. God's going to come. He's going to provide someone out of the seed of Abraham. He's going to provide someone on the house of Israel. And He's going to come and give us new hearts and forgive us our sins. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Can you say amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that, that You would come. We're thinking now about Advent, about the first Advent, the, the first coming of Christ. God, but I pray that all this would prepare us for even where we are. We are awaiting the second Advent of Christ. And stir within us, oh God, that, that longing that, that You need to come and right all our wrongs and change our world, but You need to change us first. God, transform us by Your heart. Ever give us a, a law that screams to our hearts, that that gives us a delight in You. As it says in Psalm 37, verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. May we be the meek people who delight in abundant peace that You give us through the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. O come, O come, Emmanuel. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.